Well, if it has escaped your notice, let me tell you that in two weeks' time there's going to be a coronation. I imagine everybody here, from the youngest to the oldest, is aware of that fact. And we have in our church a young... Uh, well, he's not quite so young now. He's been in the Welsh Guards for about 25... This is his 25th year. Uh, he joined the, the Welsh Guards as a musician. And I don't know, perhaps a couple of years ago, if you watched the service at the Cenotaph, you would have seen Stuart play the last post on the bugle. He's a very talented musician. But because of his uh, experience and his rank, he now has the wonderful job of being a drum major, marching in the front, swinging the mace in front of all the bandsmen. And you can see him clearly. We saw him clearly at the events of the Queen's funeral, and you'll see him again uh, marching in front of the band as the coronation procession takes place again. Now, he's also got a great privilege. I wonder how many of you, ladies perhaps, would like to wear a coat of gold worth £15,000. Well, that's exactly what Stuart wears as he marches in front of the band. He says it's really heavy. And of course, it's made with gold thread. But speaking to him the other week, I said to him, how's it going? He said, well, it's just practice, practice, practice. Practice morning, practice noon, practice even night. And he said, I'm looking forward to the 7th or the 8th of May when all this is over. I said to him, won't it really be a sense of anticlimax? He said, well, yes, I suppose so in a way. We'll stop all this practice. And they practice at night, you know, sometimes 3, 4 o'clock in the morning when the streets are quiet. He said, I don't look forward to that, and I'll be glad when that's all over. And he said, the rest of us will, in many ways, there will be a sort of letdown. All this adrenaline that's flowing now will suddenly dissipate, and it'll seem life will be quite empty. We shan't be using the bands again for some time. Now, the reason I introduce in this respect is, I think that that sense of anticlimax, must have been felt perhaps by Jesus' followers on the day following his crucifixion. As they perhaps woke on the next day, Peter and the disciples realised what had happened and perhaps realised that life was perhaps to return to normal. The disciples and Jesus' followers were now, to them it appeared, that they were looking forward to life without Jesus among them. No more would they hear his voice. No more would they benefit from his teaching. No more would they see the dead raised in front of their eyes. No more would they see healings as such as the one we considered this morning. No, mo no longer would they indeed sit round the meal table and share the wonderful teachings of Jesus. Must have been quite an anticlimax, quite a sad mood amongst them. Christ's followers must have been experienced a sense, a combination perhaps of disappointment, depression, and perhaps disbelief in what had happened. And perhaps they just didn't even begin to remember Jesus' teaching 
that there was hope because Jesus was about to rise from the dead. And perhaps in this mode of thinking, perhaps in this mood, they were of all men most miserable because as far as they were concerned, they had hope in Jesus Christ only in this world. But now, of course, comes Easter morning. But now, of course, comes the first day of the week. And now, as we read in our scriptures, we come to this series of revelations of the risen Christ to his disciples. Revelations that would prove to them as individuals and a company of his followers that Jesus indeed was risen from the dead. He had performed that amazing uh, feat of rising from the dead and by the power of his father he had overcome the powers of death and evil. And the record of these events from eyewitnesses are designed to indeed encourage us to believe but also these revelations were designed to lift their spirits to confirm their faith and to also provide the evidence for the scriptures that he indeed is risen that he is not only risen but he is alive and living in heaven today and that he sits at the right hand of the Father, uh, making prayers, offering our prayers to his heavenly Father. And so we do note here also that most of these revelations were in the main to individuals. We've read of Mary, we could have read of uh, Thomas, we could have read of Peter, and we could have read also of the two on the way to Emmaus, recorded in Luke. We note also that comforting and encouraging these individuals in his appearances to them also presents a challenge to them in their faith. And it increases and strengthens their faith as they come face to face with the risen Lord. Perhaps most importantly, as we try to express this morning, these revelations reinforce the truth that Christianity is an individual, a personal religion, centred around each individual's faith and relationship to the Saviour, Jesus Christ. You see, without personal faith and an individual relationship with Jesus Christ, there is firstly no salvation and there is therefore no hope of eternal life in heaven. Again, we are of all men most miserable if we have no hope in the risen Christ. So perhaps for the few moments we have together, perhaps we can look a little more closely at some of these personal revelations of Christ to his individual followers following his resurrection. Now, if you look at the various accounts in the various Gospels, you will notice some minor differences in the detailed accounts concerning these events, concerning the coming to the tomb early on the first day of the week. Matthew chapter 28 records that it was Mary Magdalene 
and the other Mary and that they experienced the earthquake and that they experienced the rolling back of the stone. Mark chapter 16 records that it was Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and also Salome and that when they arrived the stone was already rolled away and the tomb was empty. You look at the account in Luke 24, it records that a certain group of other women came to the tomb and they too saw that the stone had already been rolled away and the entrance to the tomb was open. But in the passage that we read together there in John 20, we read that Mary Magdalene, it seems, came on her own and she saw that the stone was already rolled away. Now, of course, it is possible that the other women were there at the same time, but it's because John wants to focus on the personal experience of Mary with Jesus that he singles her out in his record of these events. We read that uh, seeing the tomb empty, she goes to tell Peter and John. She tells them the tomb is empty. They've taken the Saviour out of the tomb and we don't know where he is. And this encourages Peter and John to run to the tomb. We don't know how far away it was, but they ran to the tomb and John arrived first and uh, looked in from the outside. But of course Peter comes rushing in, as is his nature, straight into the tomb and he sees the empty tomb and we read that he sees the clothes lying at one end and the handkerchief that had been round his head lying at the other. But they didn't realise the full implications. For as John records, for as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Their thoughts, their aspirations, it seems, were earthbound. Their thoughts, their hopes, their aspirations were limited to this physical realm. Perhaps, it's, perhaps it was that uh, they were overcome with sorrow, uh, that their hearts and minds were uh, in a disturbed and a distorted state following the events of Good Friday. It was a cataclysmic, catastrophic series of events to people who had devotedly followed and this amazing teacher for the last three years. Perhaps because of their state of mind, they could not think clearly or rationally. Grief clouded their minds. Not only had they seen him taken down and placed in the tomb, but now even the tomb was not a place where they could come and remember Jesus. But now John focuses on Mary, we read that Peter and John went back to their own homes, still presumably full of grief, still presumably full of sorrow. But John reveals and focuses on Mary. Verse 11, that Mary stood outside the tomb, weeping. And in her sorrow and weeping, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. Perhaps she stooped down to remind her what she had seen early, or perhaps to confirm what she had seen earlier. And perhaps it recorded in her mind that just two days ago 
She had been with the women that had laid the body of Jesus in that tomb. They had laid their beloved master to rest in that tomb. And as she looked in, perhaps she was taken by surprise because there were the two angels dressed in white. What a shock. What a surprise. Perhaps it was enough of a surprise to pause her weeping, to pause her crying. And there they are, sitting one at the head and one at the feet of the place where Jesus lay. Hearing her weeping and seeing her tear-stained face, they asked her, Why are you weeping? Again, she's perhaps surprised by the question. She reveals her great sorrow and her great love. She explains the reason for her sorrow. They have taken the master away and we don't know where they have laid him. And then we're told, as she answers the angels, that she turns round. Now we might ask, why does she turn round? Well, perhaps at this time, because Jesus had appeared, the angels moved their gaze, their concentration from Mary, uh, to look at him in his direction. And Mary, seeing them looking behind, turns round herself. Or perhaps it was that she felt his presence behind her. And she changed her gaze from the angels to the master. She turns and she's met with exactly the same question. Woman, why are you weeping? And then a further question. Whom are you seeking? In some ways this was a bit of a challenge to her, wasn't it? Was Jesus saying to her, Mary, don't you recognise me? Perhaps her vision was now distorted and tears had filled her eyes and she was full of sorrow. But she did not at that stage recognise her master. Perhaps it was that Jesus had indeed intervened to prevent her recognising him until the appropriate moment. So Mary, with restricted vision, perhaps physically because her eyes were filled with tears or perhaps spiritually because she hadn't been enlightened, she, supposing him to be the gardener, as the scripture records, pleads with the man, beseeches the man uh, to indeed direct her to where the body is, that she might take the body and minister to the crucified one. And what we will find as we perhaps look at this and the other incidents where Jesus reveals himself to his followers, we shall see this important principle of eyes, whether physical or spiritual sight, of playing a central role in the revelation of Jesus Christ to his followers. What a central and what a fundamental truth it is, what a fundamental need it is to have our eyes spirit spiritually opened. And as they're opened, and only as they're opened, can we enter into the great and wonderful and free gift of the salvation which Jesus Christ himself has purchased for us. Paul puts this truth so clearly in the opening chapter of his letter to the Ephesians. He writes that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, 
and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe that the eyes of your understanding might be enlightened. What an important principle this is, that the veil may be taken away. As Jesus comes and calls, we may be granted light into spiritual things, into holy things. And so to Mary at this point is granted the ability to recognise her Master and her Saviour. This understanding, this recognition, is granted through the voice of Jesus, calling her name, Mary. The sound of his voice, perhaps, the familiar accents in which he had commanded those seven devils to come out of her. He had freed that voice, which had freed her <coughs> from their power and had called her into a new power, it was as though there was another unbinding, not this time from the devils, but from the darkness of her own heart and mind, the darkness of a physical, earthly heart and mind, into the light of a new spiritual heart and mind. She had not recognised his appearance, as others did not, as we shall see. Others did not recognise his appearance. His was a resurrected body, wasn't it? Perhaps similar, perhaps the same, but she did not at this point recognise him. But it is the sound of his voice that brings forth this response. The voice enabled her unmistakably to recognise that voice, especially when he spoke her name in such a tender and such a gentle way, using those familiar accents. So, do we always recognise the voice of our Saviour? Perhaps he comes to us in different ways, in different circumstances, in different uh, truths from the scriptures. Does he speak to us in those familiar terms? Are we always in tune with the voice of our Saviour as the scriptures are open to him? But surely we cannot fail to recognise him when he comes to us and speaks our name. Now, look at Mary's response. It's immediate, isn't it? There is absolutely no hesitancy. She doesn't say, Jesus, is it really you? Does she doubt? Does she say, Jesus, how come you're alive? We laid you in the tomb only two days ago. No, what we read is that recognition is immediate. The response is Rabboni, a term teacher, the one that she grew to knew over these past years. And such is the effect of this revelation. Her heart is filled with joy that she immediately expresses herself in a desire to embrace him. Surely that's a familiar sentiment to us, isn't it? If we're, uh, if we're joined again to someone, a relation, someone or a friend that we haven't seen for many years from whom we've been separated, surely a brother or sister after some long term, a hug, an embrace, a reconnection, a rejoining of hearts and minds in fellowship. This was the result of Mary hearing her name, 
spoken by the Saviour that she loved and recognised and rejoiced in now. Now, of course, we know that that voice is still being heard. That voice is still speaking, isn't it, in this world today. It's speaking through the preaching of the gospel. It's speaking through the creation around us. It's speaking to men's consciences of which God has provided. One hymn writer puts it this way, doesn't he? Have you heard the voice of Jesus softly pleading with your heart? Have you felt his presence glorious as he calls your soul apart with a love so true and loyal, love divine that ever flows from a saviour, righteous, royal, and a cross that mercy shows? What a wonderful truth it is when the saviour speaks and we hear his voice. Now what we also note is that uh, this revelation this appearance to Mary took place early in the morning. We're told it was dark when Mary first came to the tomb. And after her discussion with the Saviour, if you like, it was possibly late morning, towards perhaps midday, and before she arrived back to tell the disciples all that had happened between her and the Saviour, uh, all the revelation. However, that was not the end of the events of that particular day, was it? Luke, in chapter 24 of his Gospel, recounts an event that took place later on in that day. In that account, Luke tells us of two brethren, or as the scripture describes them, now behold two of them. And that little phrase, two of them, indicates that these two are followers of Christ. They've been with the others and now they're walking, we're told, on this road to this little town of Emmaus. They are cross followers. We're told that one was named Cleopas. And it has been suggested that possibly the other one was Luke himself. And this is based on the fact that the account given here is so precise, so detailed, as to reflect the writing of Dr. Luke. Now, the time of this uh, event is towards evening, as we shall read. And the town of Emmaus, we are told, was about six or seven miles from Jerusalem. And it was a journey, I think, depending on uh, the ground, the terrain, and the speed at which they walked, it would have been a journey that possibly would have taken them between two and three hours. Unlike the marathon runners this morning, some of whom ran 26 miles in just over two hours. No, they walked probably uh, because of the difficulty, stones and rubble, hills and valleys on that journey, that relatively short journey. And we're told, aren't we, that at some point, a stranger joins them. Perhaps it was at a point where two roads met, the two men coming up this road and Jesus coming towards them from another direction. And they come together and they meet at this joining of the road. And again here we're told, aren't we, that they did not recognise him because their eyes were restrained. 
they were had that um, view of Jesus withheld from them at this time. And this is, of course, it's in the purpose of Jesus. Jesus, of course, knows all things. But as he comes to meet them, he remarks on their sadness and asks them, what kind of conversation is this? It probably had been the case that throughout their journey, these two men had discussed nothing but the events of the past few days. They shared with him perhaps their disappointment, perhaps their confusion, perhaps their consternation, but certainly they shared these things with him. And they wondered how it was possible that anyone could be so ignorant of these events, these momentous events in their minds that had taken place and what had been happening. And so they began to tell them, even to the events of that morning when the women had come to the tomb and when they had been told that Jesus was risen. And it's clear from Jesus' response uh, to their telling that they had found the truth of his resurrection to be too much for their human minds, too much to grasp in their human minds. It's not until the Saviour reveals the scriptures and it's not until the Saviour reveals himself that these two come to understand the reality of who Christ is and what is the work that he has done. As the Son of God he has come and he has come to redeem, to suffer and to die and to save sinful souls. He has come to cleanse sinful souls from the guilt and the punishment of their sin. He revealed to them around the meal table. And what was their reaction? Well, they say, don't they? Did not our hearts burn within us? What a wonderful reaction. What a wonderful effect the presence of Jesus Christ at their meal table had upon their own spiritual, personal experience. And secondly, they didn't hang around, did they? Uh, they returned immediately. They returned immediately to Jerusalem. And they took up the six or seven mile journey. Even at the end of the day, uh, they were encouraging Jesus to stay overnight. For well, the night was drawing in. But now that he has risen, now that he has gone from them, they eagerly want to get back. They eagerly want to tell the message of this great good news that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. The truth of a risen, triumphant Lord and Saviour. And indeed we read that they do return. They do bring the message. And we read also later that Jesus appears to all his disciples. And he appears eventually to Thomas. Doubting Thomas. There is another personal revelation. Thomas's eyes are opened as he sees the Lord and Saviour and he says, My Lord and my God. His eyes are opened to see the person, the glory, the majesty of his Saviour risen from the dead. So now perhaps in closing, let me make a couple of points. Not long points. But we wonder perhaps 
or we might wonder perhaps, when Jesus rose from the dead, why did he not appear in front of, say, King Herod? Why did he not appear in front of, say, Pontius Pilate? Or why was he not taken by the Spirit to stand in front of Caesar? And in so doing, certainly he would have established his kingdom, his kingship, his mastery, his authority over earthly rulers. After all, the scripture tells us he is the king of kings and lords of lords. Perhaps we should remember the words of the Saviour when he says, uh, but my kingdom is not of this world. He was the king of a spiritual kingdom. It would extend to all nations. His servants, his, his children will be drawn from all the nations of this world. But it would be a kingdom of hearts and minds, not bodies, not armies, not great power and money and wealth. No, as we read these events, it was that he came and revealed himself to depressed, to despise, to ridiculed, confused followers. This little band of faithful followers, he came to them and he, by his appearance, he gave them hope. He gave them encouragement. And of course, he gave them the great commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And so Jesus Christ has come to his own. And through the centuries following his resurrection and his ascension, he has empowered people to whom he reveals himself personally to go into the world and to preach the gospel, teaching men to obey all that I have commanded you. And he left them with this great promise. He left them with the promise that I will never leave you, nor forsake you, even to the end of the age. Well, we're not at the end of the age, are we? That is yet to come. The day of grace is still upon us. We have opportunity to preach the gospel. We have opportunity to tell others about Christ. And what is the driving force? Certainly the driving force should be that he has appeared to us. He has come to us as individuals. He has come to his own and revealed himself to his own and he has shown us our sin and he has shown us the salvation. And so the closing question is this. Has he come to you? Have you known his presence? Have you heard his voice? Come and respond to that wonderful call. Come unto me all ye that labour and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Amen. May we be encouraged uh, by this word this evening.